In 2007, the Sackett family started building a brand new home on a lot they owned in a residential neighborhood in Idaho. They had all the necessary permits from the state and local government in hand, but they ended up running into a problem with the federal government. The Environmental Protection Agency sent the Sacketts a notice informing them that the construction site of their new home, which contained wetlands, violated the Clean Water Act. Now, about a year before the Sacketts started construction on their new home, the court had held that the Clean Water Act does not necessarily regulate all wetlands, but not enough justices agreed why that was so to garner a majority. In a plurality opinion, Justice Scalia, joined by three others, argued that only those wetlands that have a continuous surface water connection to regulated waters may themselves be regulated. In a concurring opinion, Justice Kennedy suggested a different, much broader test allowing for regulation of wetlands regardless of surface connection as long as the wetlands bear a significant nexus with traditional navigable waters. The Ninth Circuit applied Justice Kennedy's significant nexus test to uphold the EPA's authority over the Sackett's construction site. In today's case, the court is asked whether the Ninth Circuit set forth the proper test for determining whether wetlands are waters of the United States under the Clean Water Act. Let's find out what the court decided in the May 25, 2023 opinion of the court in Sackett v. Environmental Protection Agency. Justice Alito delivered the opinion of the court in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, and Barrett joined. Justice Thomas filed a concurring opinion in which Justice Gorsuch joined. Justice Kagan filed an opinion concurring in the judgment in which Justices Sotomayor and Jackson joined. Justice Kavanaugh filed an opinion concurring in the judgment in which Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson joined. This case concerns a nagging question about the outer reaches of the Clean Water Act, or CWA, the principal federal law regulating water pollution in the United States. By all accounts, the act has been a great success. Before its enactment in 1972, many of the nation's rivers, lakes, and streams were severely polluted, and existing federal legislation had proved to be inadequate. Today, many formerly fetid bodies of water are safe for the use and enjoyment of the people of this country. There is, however, an unfortunate footnote to this success story. The outer boundaries of the Act's geographical reach have been uncertain from the start. The Act applies to the waters of the United States. But what does that phrase mean? Does the term encompass any backyard that is soggy enough for some minimum period of time? Does it reach mudflats, sandflats, wetlands, sloughs, prairie potholes, wet meadows, or playa lakes? How about ditches, swimming pools, and puddles? 
For more than a half century, the agencies responsible for enforcing the act have wrestled with the problem and adopted varying interpretations. On three prior occasions, this court has tried to clarify the meaning of the waters of the United States. But the problem persists. When we last addressed the question 17 years ago, we were unable to agree on an opinion of the court. Today, we return to the problem and attempt to identify with greater clarity what the act means by the waters of the United States. Part 1. Section A. For most of this nation's history, the regulation of water pollution was left almost entirely to the states and their subdivisions. The common law permitted aggrieved parties to bring nuisance suits against polluters. But as industrial production and population growth increased the quantity and toxicity of pollution, states gradually shifted to enforcement by regulatory agencies. Conversely, federal regulation was largely limited to ensuring that traditional navigable waters, that is, interstate waters that were either navigable in fact and used in commerce or readily susceptible of being used in this way, remained free of impediments. Congress's early efforts at directly regulating water pollution were tepid. Although the Federal Water Pollution Control Act of 1948 allowed federal officials to seek judicial abatement of pollution in interstate waters, it imposed high hurdles, such as requiring the consent of the state where the pollution originated. Despite repeated amendments over the next two decades, few actions were brought under this framework. Congress eventually replaced this scheme in 1972 with the CWA. The Act prohibits the discharge of any pollutant into navigable waters. It broadly defines the term pollutant to include not only contaminants like chemical wastes, but also more mundane materials like rock sand and cellar dirt. The CWA is a potent weapon. It imposes what have been described as crushing consequences even for inadvertent violations. Property owners who negligently discharge pollutants into covered waters may face severe criminal penalties, including imprisonment. These penalties increase for knowing violations. On the civil side, the CWA imposes over $60,000 in fines per day for each violation. And due to the Act's five-year statute of limitations and expansive interpretations of the term violation, these civil penalties can be nearly as crushing as their criminal counterparts. The Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, and the Army Corps of Engineers, Corps, jointly enforce the CWA. The EPA is tasked with policing violations after the fact, either by issuing orders demanding compliance or by bringing civil actions. The Act also authorizes private plaintiffs to sue to enforce its requirements. On the front end, both agencies are empowered to issue permits exempting activity that would otherwise be unlawful under the Act. 
Relevant here, the Corps controls permits for the discharge of dredged or fill material into covered waters. The costs of obtaining such a permit are significant, and both agencies have admitted that the permitting process can be arduous, expensive, and long. Success is also far from guaranteed, as the Corps has asserted discretion to grant or deny permits based on a long, non-exclusive list of factors that ends with a catch-all mandate to consider, in general, the needs and welfare of the people. Due to the CWA's capacious definition of pollutant, its low mens rea, and its severe penalties, regulated parties have focused particular attention on the act's geographic scope, while its predecessor encompassed interstate or navigable waters, the CWA prohibits the discharge of pollutants into only navigable waters, which it defines as the waters of the United States, including the territorial seas. The meaning of this definition is the persistent problem that we must address. Section B. Michael and Chantel Sackett have spent well over a decade navigating the CWA, and their voyage has been bumpy and costly. In 2004, they purchased a small lot near Priest Lake in Bonner County, Idaho. In preparation for building a modest home, they began backfilling their property with dirt and rocks. A few months later, the EPA sent the Sacketts a compliance order informing them that their backfilling violated the CWA because their property contained protected wetlands. The EPA demanded that the Sacketts immediately undertake activities to restore the site pursuant to a restoration work plan that it provided. The order threatened the Sacketts with penalties of over $40,000 per day if they did not comply. At the time, the EPA interpreted the waters of the United States to include all waters that could affect interstate or foreign commerce, as well as wetlands adjacent to those waters. Adjacent was defined to mean not just bordering or contiguous, but also neighboring. Agency guidance instructed officials to assert jurisdiction over wetlands adjacent to non-navigable tributaries when those wetlands had a significant nexus to a traditional navigable water. A significant nexus was said to exist when wetlands, either alone or in combination with similarly situated lands in the region, significantly affect the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of those waters. In looking for evidence of a significant nexus, Field agents were told to consider a wide range of open-ended hydrological and ecological factors. According to the EPA, the wetlands on the Sackett's lot are adjacent to, in the sense that they are in the same neighborhood as, what it described as an unnamed tributary on the other side of a 30-foot road. That tributary feeds into a non-navigable creek, which in turn feeds into Priest Lake, an intrastate body of water that the EPA designated as traditionally navigable. To establish a significant nexus, the EPA lumped the Sackett's lot together with the Kalispell Bayfin 
a large nearby wetland complex that the agency regarded as similarly situated. According to the EPA, these properties taken together significantly affect the ecology of Priest Lake. Therefore, the EPA concluded the Sacketts had illegally dumped soil and gravel onto the waters of the United States. The Sacketts filed suit under the Administrative Procedure Act, or APA, alleging that the EPA lacked jurisdiction because any wetlands on their property were not waters of the United States. The district court initially dismissed the suit, reasoning that the compliance order was not a final agency action, but that this court ultimately held that the Sacketts could bring their suit under the APA. After seven years of additional proceedings on remand, the district court entered summary judgment for the EPA. The Ninth Circuit affirmed holding that the CWA covers adjacent wetlands with a significant nexus to traditional navigable waters and that the Sackett's lot satisfied that standard. We granted certiorari to decide the proper test for determining whether wetlands are waters of the United States. Part 2. Section A. In defining the meaning of the waters of the United States, we revisit what has been a contentious and difficult task. The phrase has sparked decades of agency action and litigation. In order to resolve the CWA's applicability to wetlands, we begin by reviewing this history. The EPA and the Corps initially promulgated different interpretations of the waters of the United States. The EPA defined its jurisdiction broadly to include, for example, intrastate lakes used by interstate travelers. Conversely, the Corps, consistent with its historical authority to regulate obstructions to navigation, asserted jurisdiction over only traditional navigable waters. But the Corps' narrow definition did not last. It soon promulgated new, much broader definitions designed to reach the outer limits of Congress's commerce power. Eventually, the EPA and Corps settled on materially identical definitions. These broad definitions encompassed all waters that could affect interstate or foreign commerce. So long as the potential for an interstate effect was present, the regulation extended the CWA to, for example, interstate lakes, rivers, streams, including intermittent streams, mudflats, sand flats, wetlands, sloughs, prairie potholes, wet meadows, playa lakes, or natural ponds. The agencies likewise took an expansive view of the CWA's coverage of wetlands adjacent to covered waters. As noted, they defined adjacent to mean bordering, contiguous, or neighboring, and clarified that adjacent wetlands include those that are separated from covered waters by mandate dikes or barriers, natural river berms, beach dunes, and the like. They also specified that wetlands is a technical term encompassing those areas that are inundated or saturated by surface or groundwater at a frequency and duration 
sufficient to support, and that under normal conditions do support, a prevalence of vegetation typically adapted for life in saturated soil conditions. The Corps released what would become a 143-page manual to guide officers when they determine whether property meets this definition. This court first construed the meaning of the waters of the United States in United States v. Riverside Bayview Homes, Inc., 1985. There, we were confronted with the Corps' assertion of authority under the CWA over wetlands that actually abutted on a navigable waterway. Although we expressed concern that wetlands seemed to fall outside traditional notions of waters, we nonetheless deferred to the core, reasoning that the transition from water to solid ground is not necessarily or even typically an abrupt one. The agencies responded to Riverside Bayview by expanding their interpretations even further. Most notably, they issued the Migratory Bird Rule, which extended jurisdiction to any waters or wetlands that are or would be used as a habitat by migratory birds or endangered species. As the Corps would later admit, nearly all waters were jurisdictional under the Migratory Bird Rule. In Solid Waste Agency of Northern Cook County v. Army Corps of Engineers, 2001, or SWANCC, this court rejected the Migratory Bird Rule, which the Corps had used to assert jurisdiction over several isolated ponds located wholly within the state of Illinois. Disagreeing with the Corps' argument that ecological interests supported its jurisdiction, we instead held that the CWA does not extend to ponds that are not adjacent to open water. Days after our decision, the agencies issued guidance that sought to minimize SWANCC's impact. They took the view that this court's holding was strictly limited to waters that are non-navigable, isolated, and intrastate and that field staff should continue to exercise CWA jurisdiction to the full extent of their authority for any waters that fall outside of that category. The agencies never defined exactly what they regarded as the full extent of their authority. They instead encouraged local field agents to make decisions on a case-by-case basis. What emerged was a system of vague rules that depended on locally developed practices. Deferring to the agency's localized decisions, lower courts blessed an array of expansive interpretations of the CWA's reach. Within a few years, the agencies had interpreted their jurisdiction over the waters of the United States to cover 270 to 300 million acres of wetlands and virtually any parcel of land containing a channel or conduit through which rainwater or drainage may occasionally or intermittently flow. It was against this backdrop that we granted review in Rapanos v. United States. The lower court in the principal case before us had held that the CWA covered wetlands near ditches and drains that eventually emptied into navigable waters at least 11 miles away, a theory that had supported the petitioner's conviction 
in a related prosecution. Although we vacated that decision, no position commanded a majority of the court. Four justices concluded that the CWA's coverage did not extend beyond two categories. First, certain relatively permanent bodies of water connected to traditional interstate navigable waters, and second, wetlands with such a close physical connection to those waters that they were, as a practical matter, indistinguishable from waters of the United States. Four justices would have deferred to the government's determination that the wetlands at issue were covered under the CWA. Finally, one justice concluded that jurisdiction under the CWA requires a significant nexus between wetlands and navigable waters, and that such a nexus exists where the wetlands, either alone or in combination with similarly situated lands in the region, significantly affect the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of those waters. In the decade following Rapanos, the EPA and the Corps issued guidance documents that recognized larger gray areas and called for more fact-intensive, individualized determinations in those gray areas. As discussed, they instructed agency officials to assert jurisdiction over wetlands adjacent to non-navigable tributaries based on fact-specific determinations regarding the presence of a significant nexus. The guidance further advised officials to make this determination by considering a lengthy list of hydrological and ecological factors. Echoing what they had said about the migratory bird rule, the agencies later admitted that almost all waters and wetlands across the country theoretically could be subject to a case-specific jurisdictional determination under this guidance. More recently, the agencies have engaged in a flurry of rulemaking defining the waters of the United States. In a 2015 rule, they offered a muscular approach that would subject the vast majority of the nation's water features to a case-by-case jurisdictional analysis. Although the rule listed a few examples of waters that were excluded from regulation, like puddles and swimming pools, it categorically covered other waters and wetlands, including any within 1,500 feet of interstate or traditional navigable waters, and it subjected a wider range of other waters, including any within 4,000 feet of indirect tributaries of interstate or traditional navigable waters, to a case-specific determination for significant nexus. The agencies repealed this sweeping rule in 2019. Shortly afterwards, they replaced it with a narrower definition that limited jurisdiction to traditional navigable waters and their tributaries, lakes, and adjacent wetlands. They also narrowed the definition of adjacent, limiting it to wetlands that abut covered waters, are flooded by those waters, or are separated from those waters by features like berms or barriers. This rule, too, did not last. After granting the EPA's voluntary motion to remand, a district court vacated the rule. The agencies recently promulgated yet another rule attempting to define waters of the United States. 
Under that broader rule, traditional navigable waters, interstate waters, and the territorial seas, as well as their tributaries and adjacent wetlands, are waters of the United States. So are any intrastate lakes and ponds, streams, or wetlands that either have a continuous surface connection to categorically included waters or have a significant nexus to interstate or traditional navigable waters. Like the post-Rapanos guidance, the rule states that a significant nexus requires consideration of a list of open-ended factors. Finally, the rule returns to the broad pre-2020 definition of adjacent. Acknowledging that field of work is often necessary to confirm the presence of a wetland under these definitions, the rule instructs local agents to continue using the Corps' Wetlands Delineation Manual. Section B. With the benefit of a half-century of practice under the CWA, it is worth taking stock of where things stand. The agencies maintain that the significant nexus test has been and remains sufficient to establish jurisdiction over adjacent wetlands. And by the EPA's own admission, almost all waters and wetlands are potentially susceptible to regulation under that test. This puts many property owners in a precarious position because it is often difficult to determine whether a particular piece of property contains waters of the United States. Even if a property appears dry, application of the guidance in a complicated manual ultimately decides whether it contains wetlands. And because the CWA can sweep broadly enough to criminalize mundane activities like moving dirt, this unchecked definition of the waters of the United States means that a staggering array of landowners are at risk of criminal prosecution or onerous civil penalties. What are landowners to do if they want to build on their property? The EPA recommends asking the Corps for a jurisdictional determination, which is a written decision on whether a particular site contains covered waters. But the Corps maintains that it has no obligation to provide jurisdictional determinations, and it has already begun announcing exceptions to the legal effect of some previous determinations. Even if the Corps is willing to provide a jurisdictional determination, a property owner may find it necessary to retain an expensive expert consultant who is capable of putting together a presentation that stands a chance of persuading the Corps. And even then, a landowner's chances of success are low, as the EPA admits that the Corps finds jurisdiction approximately 75% of the time. If the landowner is among the vast majority who receive adverse jurisdictional determinations, what then? It would be foolish to go ahead and build since the jurisdictional determination might form evidence of culpability in a prosecution or civil action. The jurisdictional determination could be challenged in court, but only after the delay and expense required to exhaust the administrative appeals process. And once in court, the landowner would face an uphill battle under the deferential standards of review 
that the agencies enjoy. Another alternative would be simply to acquiesce and seek a permit from the Corps, but that process can take years and cost an exorbitant amount of money. Many landowners faced with this unappetizing menu of options would simply choose to build nothing. This opinion has been divided into two parts, and we've come to the end of the first. Next episode, we will pick up exactly where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.